Memphis Music Interview, Memphis Music History Told from the Inside. This week's guest is a Memphis music icon, John Fry, the owner of Ardent Studios. I'm Mitch McCracken, and I believe this is John Fry's last interview before his untimely death on December 18, 2014. Here's the interview from September of 2013. I started by talking about the first broadcast from Ardent over FM 100. The year was 1970 or 71, and the artist was Wishbone Ash. We still have the old uh, transformers from the equalized phone lines. That was a, a big deal at that time. Yeah, we made the phone company uh, give us full bandwidth telephone lines. Wow. From here to FM 100. Right. And we did a whole series of these broadcasts, and they were live. Uh-huh. I mean, there, there was no pre-delay. There was no cutting anything out. Whatever the people did is what went on the air. Right. And we never had any incidents, I'm pleased to say. But we did uh, Wishbone Ash, as you point out. Uh, we did uh, Leonard Skinnerd one. Uh-huh. Part of which actually wound up on one of their albums. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the Wishbone Ash is is a uh, bonus tracks on the Argus CD now. Yeah. So that, uh, a lot of that stuff sounded really good. It did, especially the Phoenix. I remember that was like yeah. it went on forever. But so yeah. Leonard Skinner. When did you do Leonard Skinner? What year was that? It was probably in that same time window. We kind of did a series of mm-hmm. them that spanned maybe you know year eighteen months. Right. And then it kind of petered out for reasons that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the strangest ones was Martin Mull. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he insisted on having a fireplace. Uh-huh. So we made like a fake fireplace by having somebody draw it out. Uh-huh. And he had to have something else. Now, this is for radio, right. not television. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he insisted on being introduced on the air by a midget. Really? And who'd you get to do that? We got a guy that was one of the little people uh, (laughs) whose name won't come to me now, but Uh uh, he was glad to do it and did a great job. Wow. And uh, we would always have a small live audience, you know, maybe 30, 40 people. Right. You know, it was fun. Eventually, you got to where there were a lot of people... Um, that didn't necessarily record here that had had you doing the mixing for them. Like, didn't you do mixing for Led Zeppelin? Well, I didn't personally. Terry, right. Terry Manning did that. Right, but Led right. Zeppelin III was, was finished and mixed at the Old Ardent on National Street. Mm-hmm. And the circumstances were that um, Led Zeppelin had done most of the album at Olympic Studios in London. Mm-hmm. But they had a U.S. tour schedule and a U.S. release date scheduled. They didn't want to cancel dates or move anything back. And Jimmy Page and Terry Manning were kind of buddies. So they worked out the scheme that they'd go ahead with their tour when they didn't have dates. Somebody would come into Memphis and they would wrap up the album. Mm-hmm. So that was how Led Zeppelin Three got created. This was also East Tulsa for a while, wasn't it? We started out mainly just doing mixing for Leon Russell for his records and other people on the shelter lane. Mm-hmm. But and, and I was doing all that myself, and and uh, that progressed into you know actually doing some studio sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we did a Freddie King album, for example, uh, uh, for Shelter, mm-hmm. that had all the A-list L.A. players. He just brought them out. Right. You know, and, and, and it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, you didn't do but one or two takes and you were done. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, speaking of uh, Leon Russell, Don Nix told me to tell you hello. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, I mean, he was responsible really for turning uh, Leon on to to Memphis and what was going on at, at uh, Arden because mm-hmm. he would go out to L.A. and hang out with all those guys. He said that there were three people that uh, without them he would have never been anything, and it was uh, you, Leon Russell, and and Jim Stewart. I've heard him say so. He's probably wrong. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in his heart, it's, it's uh, those three people. How did you draw so many people to artists outside of Memphis to come in to record? Well, I've been doing this for 47, going on 48 years. Mm -hmm. My experience is the best advertising you can have is word of mouth from a satisfied customer. Mm -hmm. And the second best is that little tiny credit line on the back of a record that happens to be a hit. Uh, So, you know, those things speak louder than buying, you know, a million dollars worth of paid advertising. Mm -hmm. Yes, now, uh, the Vaughn brothers and Stevie Ray Vaughn have recorded here. And Jimmy Vaughn on his uh, uh, solo records. Right. So how'd that come about? Well, it started with Jimmy, and I honestly don't remember what brought Jimmy. Mm -hmm. But that evolved into Stevie Ray coming here uh, for an album, and then they did, uh, together, they did the Vaughn Brothers, which was the last studio recording that Stevie Ray did before his death. And and then he recorded In Step here, too, right? Yes. So now now how involved are you now as far as the actual recording goes, or are you more... Managing the studios, and uh, or do you still get in, uh, roll up your sleeves and, and get into the uh, producing and engineering? My role is mainly management now, mm-hmm. uh, and and has been for some time. Uh, you know, as the company got bigger, and as we had more and more, you know, really competent guys coming along. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just sort of a natural shift for me. And about the only time I've gotten back into doing any active mixing is when there's some of these reissues, like uh, some of the recent Big Star reissues. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually a guy named Adam Hill and I will do those together. Uh, I've kind of showed him everything about how we did everything in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Oddly enough, we've still got the original equipment, like for the Big Star stuff. Uh, we've got the original echo chambers and EMT machines and a lot of the outboard gear wow. that still works. Uh-huh. Um, so, And we never remix anything where there's an authentic remix from the 70s, at least with regard to Big Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Big Star box set, there were six things we found on multitrack, and there were no stereo mixes from the 70s. So we had to try to recreate and make those match the rest of the stuff Mm -hmm. in the album and not stick out like a a sore thumb. Right. And then for this Big Star movie, uh, uh, the Big Star story, Nothing Can Hurt Me, uh, we did a a whole lot of mixes uh, for the soundtrack. So, John, why do you think out-of-town artists come here to Arden? Is it the Memphis Sound? 
or is it your staff? Some of them are coming to work either with a particular engineer producer mm-hmm. or to use some of our great Memphis musicians and vocalists. Mm-hmm. Some are coming because they're fans of other things that have been done at the studio and they are looking for that same vibe, if you will. Mm-hmm. And as a larger issue, some are becoming beca- coming because they're they're just they're fans of Memphis, all things included, mm-hmm. and Ardent happens to be one of those things. Right. Um, and you can't underestimate the power of that. I mean, uh, you mentioned Jimmy Vaughn. He was always one that cited it. He said when he was here in Memphis that he just felt the creative juices flowing. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's bunk. <laughs> but, you know, it's perfectly real if that's what happens, and that's the feeling and the energy that are engendered in that person, mm-hmm. then it's real as all get out. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I, everybody I talk to, I ask them their take on, on Memphis music and what makes um, Memphis music so different than, than say, like... Uh, uh, L.A. or New York or Seattle or some of the other cities that are known for music. What do you think is the difference here? Oh, we're a bunch of misfits. <laughs> you know, that, that could be it. That that very well could be it. You know, there's always been, I think, a, a competence here combined with a kind of rebelliousness or willing to try new things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at all the different entrepreneurs... Uh, you know, you'll, I think, see a pattern of, of folks uh, behaving that way. Right. Uh, now, I don't know what causes them to behave that way more so in Memphis than they do anywhere else, but mm-hmm. they do. Yeah. And, you know, we've had our own little experiences of that. For example, with the Big Star Records, in the 70s, uh, the rock press uh, just ate it up. Mm-hmm. You know, got enough ink to, you know, use up a few barrels of ink. Right. Uh, but that didn't much get records into the stores or get them sold. And our mm-hmm. distributor was Stax, who was going through Columbia, which never worked for Stax, and it never worked for us. And, and you know, it wasn't long before that whole dysfunctional relationship, Stax, Columbia, and, mm-hmm. and, and other things, mm-hmm. uh brought stacks to its demise. Right. But in any case, the Big Star Records were popular with the rock press, and they were popular with the FM stereo stations that were just emerging, Mm -hmm. uh, which almost nobody listened to, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, um, you know, it only reached kind of the, the, you know, true insider fan at Mm -hmm. that time, lay dormant until the late 70s. And then started off kind of a word-of-mouth identity of its own that's continued until today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I alluded to before, when you're talking about late 70s and into the 80s, you're still talking about the pre-internet age. For the word to get around, uh, it's much more difficult. Right. Uh, it really is word-of-mouth. It's people sharing bootleg cassettes. It's, uh, you know, it's all of those... Um, things. Right. And in the case of Big Star, 
a lot of it was really fed back from the UK and Europe into the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this. How, how big was the rivalry between Alex and Chris? Was that, did they blow that out of proportion, uh, uh, the reports of, of the rivalry between the two, or were you aware of it? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a rivalry. I mean, I thought as long as they were working together, I thought they had a great working relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think, as Jody says in the documentary, you know, part of Chris's leaving the band was his bitter disappointment at the lack of success of number one record. Mm -hmm. Another component was the fact that the press, because of Alex's previous affiliations with the box tops and all that, mm -hmm. had really, you know, sort of picked up that thread and run with it. And and uh, I think to some degree he thought that had he stayed on, he might wind up sort of living in the shadow of that forever. Right. And um, he went out and did a bunch of, of solo material, which lay dormant for a really long time, but now is available in, in very good reissues. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Alex's vocals were so different uh, between the box tops and Big Star. I mean, you almost couldn't tell it was the same person. True. Well, in Big Star and some of his other recordings, mm -hmm. he was basically singing in what was his natural singing voice. Mm -hmm. All of that box tops gruff stuff mm -hmm. uh, was a a production idea. Right. Where they said, you know, do it like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Alex was 16, so it's kind of like, He did okay, it like that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do it like that. And, you know, he has a huge hit on the first record, so it's like, well, maybe we keep on doing it. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that formula works. So, yeah, and that was, uh, uh, the box tops recorded over at American, right? Uh, well, I think, if memory serves me correctly, that the letter may have been done down at Muscle Shoals. Mm. But subsequently, they did most of the recording using the American rhythm section, mm -hmm. not not the traveling right. stops band. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, starting with uh, the string and horn overdubs and the mixing for Cry Like a Baby, uh, Dan Penn would do all his finishing work at mm -hmm. Art for as long as he continued producing. Basically, he was doing some some work at Ardent, uh, as I said, mainly finishing work where mm -hmm. he would, you know, put on his horns and strings and do his mix right. at the old Ardent on National Street, and that pretty much lasted for as long as as the Box Stops franchise ran on. What other projects did you have hands-on experience with? Well, again, it wasn't hands-on for me because Terry Manning and later John Hampton and Joe Hardy did it. But, mm -hmm. you know, one of the most notable ones is ZZ Top. We did their eight best-selling albums. Uh, the little old band from Texas was really kind of the little old band from Memphis as far as <laughs> recording was concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, all of that started up after they had made their first record, which they recorded somewhere down in Waco, Texas or someplace right. like that. Yeah. And... Uh, weren't hugely happy with the way it sounded. And they would come up here and play shows uh, fairly regularly over at the Orden Park Shell. Mm -hmm. And they kind of heard about Arden, heard it was a nice studio and all that kind of thing. So for from the second album, you know, on through their eight best-selling albums, mm -hmm. uh, 
they did all the recording and, and mixing here at Arden and Memphis. A lot of their success was because of where they were recording their records. Well, their music was great and their playing was great, and I think they probably could have recorded anywhere. But again, they felt an affinity for Memphis, and they enjoyed being here. They enjoyed the studio experience. Uh, they enjoyed the experience of the city, mm-hmm. and um, it kept them returning. Um, now, uh, Jim Gain, was he uh, staff here, or did he just do projects here? Jim just did uh, projects here. Okay. And, uh, you know, he came from an interesting background. Both he and Ronnie Capone, who wound up at Stax and then was Steve Cropper at TMI, mm-hmm. it came out of what was, it had several names, but it, it was Pepper, and then it was Pepper Tanner, and right. then it was Tanner, mm-hmm. and it was a jingle company. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that's where they cut their teeth before they went into to doing uh, recording for, for records. Mm-hmm. Ronnie, unfortunately, has passed away some years ago, but, uh, you know, Jim is still active and, and uh, does projects here from time to time and, and, you know, has a huge discography of people that he's produced. Right, yeah. He's, uh, I went out to his house out by Pickwick yeah. and sat and talked to, to him and Sandy, uh, Sandy Carroll, his wife. But they are really, really good people. Uh, Jim Dickinson. Came, was was on staff here for a while and then kind of did his own thing, but um, still went through here, right? Jim was the first guy who was ever introduced to me as being an independent record producer. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the home studio days, you know, uh-huh. in the, you know, maybe around 63, 64. A fellow named Bobby Fisher, who had music stores, I think maybe still has one, I brought this band over to the home studio and, and said, well, they, these guys sound pretty good. Well, let's record them. And, and he said, uh, well, you know, maybe they need a producer. And I said, well, where do we get one of those? <laughs> and he said, well, I know this guy, Jim Dickinson. So Jim came over and, you know, kind of liked the guys and liked the setup. And uh, he produced, you know, the first little 45 that we put out on them and several others thereafter. Mm-hmm. And then when we opened up on National Street at the end of 1966, beginning of 67, uh, he came on staff as kind of an engineer producer in residence. His wife, Mary Lindsay, was our first office employee. Mm-hmm. So they were really the first two you know, paid employees on National Street. And Jim stayed until sometime in 68 when the Atlantic people were putting together the Dixie Flyers rhythm section in Miami because they wanted to be able to record a lot in, in Miami, mm-hmm. um, probably when it was wintertime in New York. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he went down there with the Dixie Flyers for the duration of that, wound up making a solo album that was released on Atlantic, uh, which I mixed here, when recorded here, uh, called Dixie Fried. Mm-hmm. And I think that's recently gone into uh, reissue or is in the process of being reissued mm-hmm. and is a real interesting record. Now, he, um, he was really talented. Um, and, I, you know, I, I just interviewed um, Reba Russell, and she was talking about some of the quotes that he had given her. Um, and, uh, his, his, of course, you know, with uh, Amy LeVere, um, he did. A, I saw a YouTube interview with him talking about about producing Amy's um, record. So, um, 
plus he he won how many years in a row best producer it's like well four or five until he took himself out of the running yes but, well i mean he was you know as you can look at his huge list of accomplishments uh, you know he's a talented instrumentalist mm -hmm. uh, certainly a talented producer for sure had a colorful way of expressing him. <laughs> yes, he did. And I was just talking to Mary Lindsay Dickinson on the phone uh, this morning while I was driving in, and, and uh, there's a book that Jim started writing before his death and that uh, she and the sons kind of finished up. And mm -hmm. A bunch of editors are working on, you know, sort of condensing it and getting it into form for uh, publishing. She's got a publisher lined up. And, of course... You know, it's a musical family. The boys, Luther and Cody, are, you know, really making some noise mm -hmm. with, with all of their different groups, North Mississippi All-Stars and Hill Country Review and new North Mississippi All-Stars, World Boogie is Coming, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, getting ready to release and, you know, already has some videos on them the various outlets. Those kids spent a lot of their time growing up around here. He was so proud of them, too, uh, and stopped touring after they were born, so stayed, stayed more in town. He was a great guy, and he, was, uh, he influenced a lot of people. I just saw uh, where the replacements are getting back together, and he produced their album here, right? Yes, he did, and um, obviously the album was a huge hit at the time, and interestingly enough, it, it had uh, the song Alex Chilton on it. Mm -hmm. Who's that girl? What's that song? Right. And, uh, and nobody can forget it. You hear it once. And mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Well, now, let me ask you this. Big Star started coming back. Was that because of the 70s show, do you think? Uh, no, it predated that. As okay. I, as I said, in 1978, EMI leased the Masters from the new owners, which were fantasy records at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. for number one record in Radio City. Mm -hmm. There are two albums that were released on Arden through Stack, and they put those out in the UK and Europe as a double fold-out vinyl, mm -hmm. of which I had no knowledge until somebody told me about it and sent me. Uh, but then people started getting them into the U.S. as imports, talking about them, and, and all of that sort of thing, which is why I say a lot of it was fed back from the UK and the European uh, fan base. And then it kind of went around by word of mouth in the 80s. The Bangles covered September Girls. Uh, you know, a lot of other artists covered, you know, in the 80s and going into the early 90s, like the UK artist, This Mortal Coil, covered some Big Star and some Chris Bell uh, material. And there were various reissues. Fantasy finally woke up and reissued the first, <laughs> first two records uh, in the... US, and then the third album, sometimes called Sister Lovers, or Big Star Third, uh, which was the one, the only one that was produced by Jim Dickinson. Mm -hmm. uh, because by that time, Alex said, I think I need a producer. Can you get Jim Dickinson? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll sure try. And I called up, and he said, sure, love to do it. And uh, so we were off on a pretty wild ride for that one. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, but that came out in the late 70s as a vinyl reissue and then CD on, you know, through various outlets. Mm -hmm. Again, all of these things, products are available today as very high quality reissues. Uh, number one record in Radio City on vinyl, 
where it sounds the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from Concord, the current uh, owner of the master rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, third on vinyl and CD, uh, in a great form from the original analog tapes, all put together here for Omnivore Records. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the Chris Bell solo material, um, which Adam and I, you know, worked on getting archived from the original tapes that existed, plus, you know, doing some alternate mixes and things like that that didn't exist. Uh, the high quality form of that is the two disc um, CD reissue uh, from Rhino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get uh, Chris's solo album I'm in the Cosmos out on a high quality vinyl. It's out it's out on vinyl now uh, but unfortunately the people who issued it saw fit to master it from an early 90s CD so that <laughs> So that that sort of defeats the purpose of vinyl, right? Um, well, so tell me what what makes vinyl sound sound better than than a CD? Well, gosh, I can only tell you a little bit. Um, first of all, all CDs don't sound bad. Mm-hmm. The recent CDs, the last ten years, have suffered from what a lot of people call the loudness wars. Mm-hmm. where the artist or the producer comes in and says, I want mine louder than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. So they apply all this excessive digital limiting and so forth and processing and just squash all the dynamics out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, those things just practically make my teeth itch. <laughs> I mean, uh, it'll give you listener fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the high-end sizzles and splatters and... and uh, that's not what music sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you get some 80 CDs or things that were mastered more like you would master for vinyl mm-hmm. without all of that excessive processing. And there's some great sounding CDs. You know, vinyl is an analog medium. And there's a lot of argument, oh, which sounds better, analog or digital? Well, Good digital can sound better than bad analog, <laughs> uh, but good analog sounds better than almost anything. And some of it is probably quantifiable. Uh, normally, people that cut uh, analog vinyl masters preserve the dynamics, the natural dynamics in the music. Mm-hmm. I know we do, or Larry and Kevin Nix, who have their business here on, Nash- on Madison uh, in our studio building. Um, they still have, by the way, as, as an aside, they have the original vinyl lathe that was at Stacks from 1970 to 75, and they've got it, and it works, been completely refurbished, and uh, we've recut stuff that we cut in the 70s, and you know the masters and the parts had long since disappeared, so we recut it. Matches perfectly. Does it really? It does. And um, well, now he used that at Stacks too, right? Oh, he did. He yeah. was the master engineer there from seventy to seventy-five. Again, to to answer your question, why does analog on vinyl sound good? Well, that's an oxymoron. It's got to be analog if it's on vinyl. Uh, <laughs> why does vinyl sound so good? Mm-hmm. Part of it is because the mastering engineers 
and the producers tend to preserve the natural dynamics in the music. Um, part of it, I think, is because it's an analog medium and, uh, you know, digital release media now have a relatively low sampling rate by comparison to the digital stuff we use in the studio today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 44.1 kilohertz or cycles per second, which means the highest frequency it will reproduce is, is about 22,000 cycles per mm -hmm. second. Well, you'd say, well, dogs can hear that. Uh, <laughs> well, there have been a lot of empirical tests done showing that uh, people can hear and prefer systems that, that don't have, not to get too technical, a truncated bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, man, it just sounds good. <laughs> and, and probably one of the best things about it uh, is just the whole tactile experience of getting a nice big 12 inch by 12 inch thing where you can really look at the picture and the type is big enough to read it without a magnifying glass. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, you get you get an actual thing to hold on mm -hmm. to instead of, you know. A file. <laughs> yeah, five inches square or instead of a file. All right, well, I appreciate your time, John. I know you're a busy man, but uh, thank you for sitting down and talking with me. Well, thank you for having me. When it's all said and done, we can only hope that we have made a difference. John Fry certainly made a difference, not only for Memphis music, but music in general. He was a kind and humble man and a dear friend. I miss him. Make sure you're with us next time for my conversation with the killer's little sister, Linda Gale Lewis, on Memphis Music Interview. Memphis music history told from the inside. I'm Mitch McCracken. I hope to see you then. Memphis Music Interview is a Get Cracken production.